because it's December 29th, and we have three days to go until January 1st, and it's the year 2014 almost, we figured it would be appropriate to both continue the conversation from last week. Jose was talking about grace, which is God's mind-blowing goodness to us, and we're also going to talk about newness in a sense. So we're going to move forward into 2014 talking about something new. And if we look back at 2013, I uh, can think of really great victories, really high moments. And I, actually, as I look around the room, there's some people that I met for the first time in 2013 or um, guys that graduated high school in 2013, moved away to college and, and are off doing their own thing, which is super exciting. I was looking back through pictures and my computer last night and brought a lot of smiles to my face just thinking back on the last year. But also thinking back over the last year, think of some negative moments, some down points, some low points, times where I messed up, times where I was rude, times where I was angry, times where I know what I should have done, and and yet I didn't do it. And I think that happens to us. I think that happens to all of us at some, some point in time. We know what we ought to do, or we know what we should do, and yet there's a gap there between what we know should happen and what actually does happen. And we know what the way the world ought to be, and yet it's not quite there. And So tonight, we want to kind of talk about why that is, and I think the answer to why, why do we experience that, and why do we experience that gap, I think at the core of the answer is identity and what we believe about ourselves and what we place our trust in. So with that, we're going to turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and we're going to read a passage that you've probably heard a hundred times, but that's okay, because we pray that God will give new insight to all of us and fresh eyes to read this passage. John, chapter 3. It's the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel. comes after Luke and right before the book of Acts. We're just going to read the first three verses. John chapter 3, picking up in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's a leader in the nation of Israel. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So basically, Nicodemus is saying, so you're doing all this great stuff. Who are you? Jesus replies, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I've heard this like a hundred times, and I've actually preached on it before. And so I have to guard myself from just thinking, oh, that's nice. Because I think of myself as a born-again Christian, that's a title that we use, and we talk about being born again, but in doing so, we might miss the gravity of what Jesus is actually saying. What Jesus is saying is that in order to participate, in order to see his kingdom, you actually need to be born again. Like, you need to be born again. You You need to start over. You need to have something entirely new start up. And that's why Nicodemus, when he goes on, Nicodemus has a really confused response because Nicodemus understands how crazy this is. Nicodemus basically says, um, Mr. Teacher, sir, how does that biologically work? Like, how can a full-grown man be born again? That doesn't make any sense. Nicodemus, the guy who asks him, actually catches how crazy and how big this is. And, and what we can't miss is that Jesus is actually saying to participate in what I'm doing, to really be a part of it, people need a new birth. They need to actually be born again. They need a new heart. They need a big change. And, and Jesus says this because when we look around at the world, we see a broken world, and we see a broken world because of sin. Uh, the, the world is broken because of sin, and sin directly comes from the heart. Uh, the world is messed up because of broken, misfiring, messed up hearts. 
And sin is all around us. And apart from Jesus, sin is, is rampant in us. Uh, now, you're probably like me, and you haven't committed any gigantic crimes against humanity. But you're probably also like me in that you've committed injustice. You have committed crimes against other people, not like legal crimes, but you, you've wronged people before. Um, and, and even more importantly, you've not only wronged people, but in wronging someone else, you've also wronged God. And I, I, the thing that came to mind when I was thinking of, okay, what's one example of, of how I've committed injustice? Because there's been plenty of ways that I have. But a really obvious one that came to mind is just uh, my life before Jesus wouldn't necessarily characterize it as like a racist response, but there were definitely times where I treated people differently simply because they looked differently than me. And that's injustice. That's wrong. That's me contributing to the brokenness of the world around me. And that's not okay. Jesus talks about how, how sin and good things come out of the heart. And I'm going to put this uh, verse up on the screen. It's Luke 6.45. Jesus says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So Jesus just says simply, whatever's inside, that's what happens outside. And I think that's why Jesus says in John 3, you actually need to have a big change in order to participate in what God's doing. Because if there's evil in here, you're not able to do good out here. And that means that humanity, that means that you and I, that means that we have a problem. Because even as we celebrate Christmas, we see sin in the world all around us. We see hatred, we see senseless violence, we see injustice, we even see greed. You might have even seen greed on Wednesday morning. I bet I did this as a kid, but some of you probably did this Wednesday, or some of you probably saw this Wednesday morning, which was Christmas morning for those, like, the 25th, um, that uh, if you have kids, you might have bought your kids everything they possibly asked for, everything that was on the list. You might have even gone above and beyond the list. And by 9.15, they finish opening up all the gifts and they turn to you with the big puppy dog eyes and say, is that it? Like, that's greed. It's, and greed's as much as a part of being a human or of being an American as, as anything else. But that's a problem. And it's a problem that needs to be fixed. And you guys all know the story. Is, is the good news is that that does get fixed. But what sometimes we don't often realize is that the rest of the New Testament teaches that for those of us who are in Christ, that new birth, that thing that needed to happen, that actually has taken place. The rest of the New Testament teaches that for those of us in Christ, we've actually died to that old self, and we've actually experienced a new life. So there's three ways in the New Testament that uh, that big change that, that Jesus says needs to happen that God had promised would happen. If you look back at prophecies in Ezekiel or Jeremiah, God has always promised that he was going to change humans because that the core of, of the problem is the human heart and that needs to change. God's always promised this was, this was going to happen. Jesus says it needs to happen. And then the rest of the New Testament teaches that for those of us in Christ, it actually has happened. So there's three ways predominantly, three big ideas in the New Testament that this gets talked about. So one is new birth. Uh, we see this in Jesus, but uh, it also gets picked up by other New Testament authors saying you have been born again. And then this concept of death and new life, um, words about dying to the old self, uh, coming alive to God, or, or putting on the new self. It's about death and life. And there's also the concept of new creation. All three of those concepts are pretty big deals. So I could ask any of the new moms in the room, birth is a pretty big thing. Now, I don't know much about it, 
Uh, still a single guy. I have never, like, had an aunt or, like, had to be in the room. But I'm sure, or I've heard, that it's a pretty traumatic event, right? <laughs> and birth is a big thing. And so when Jesus says that a new thing has to happen, it's a big deal. Same thing with death and life. Those are big concepts. And the same thing with creation. When, when Paul, we're going to read this passage in a little bit, but the idea of creation is how God created everything that you can see, feel, touch, all of that. He created all of that out of nothing. So the New Testament picks up on these three really big concepts and say something new, something big has happened in us. Uh, now, what some of you may be thinking, and I think part of this gap and part of this whole conversation is, well, what if I don't feel like it? What if I don't feel all that different? And I'm going to suggest and encourage that it's a whole lot less about how you feel, and it's more about having faith in what Jesus has done. It's about believing that what Jesus says about you is true, because that's simply what faith is. Faith is believing God at his word. So let's continue on. Let's look at death and new life. I'm pointing at the screen. I, I don't know. There's a screen down there in case you didn't know. <laughs> People are like, what is he pointing at? There's a screen down there. Uh, Romans 6. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there, or you can look up at the screens if you'd like to. I'll read it to you. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that's Jesus, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's you and me. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, which this is verse 11, and it's super powerful. And a couple days ago when I was reading over this again, verse 11 just sticks out. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And again, we can't miss the gravity of that. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Um, for those of us who, who have messed up, who've, who've lived lives of, of sin, that's um, a really powerful statement. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And, and Paul is saying this has happened. This is a past action, that at the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus, that has happened, you have been set free, you're no longer a slave to sin. So just drop some, I dropped something. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, squirrel, someone said that. Now I am distracted, that's okay. <laughs> you have been set free. You're no longer a slave to sin, that's, that's true about you. You're no longer a slave to sin. That means sin does not have ruling power over you and you're actually alive to God. Now, this phrase of in Christ is really interesting. I think it can be confusing. It actually appears 165 times in the New Testament. I didn't personally count. I took someone else's word for it. But it appears 165 times, and it's the, the primary way that Paul, who authors most of the New Testament, talks about uh, believers, Christians, Jesus followers. He refers to us as being in Christ. Uh, and what that really means is being associated with or being a part of or being in union with Jesus and what he's doing. Or if you were there on New Year's Eve, it's, it's what John Mark was talking about when he said placing your whole weight on Jesus or shaping your entire life around Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. 
And so when Paul talks about these things, and he says, for those in Christ, this is what happens. That's for believers. That's for Christians. That's for Jesus followers. That's for you and for me. And Paul is saying this has happened. That new thing that needed to happen, it actually has happened. Uh, We're going to turn one more place. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Which, 2 Corinthians is a letter from a guy named Paul, this guy Paul, to a church in the city of Corinth, which my fiance and I get to go to on our honeymoon. Isn't that awesome? And it's not like we picked like Bible, Bible places to go to on our honeymoon. We're going to Greece and we get to go to uh, Corinth, which is super awesome. Not because we're super godly, but because kind of we're, we're kind of history nerds, but that's okay. Some of you are going, that sounds like a terrible honeymoon. That's okay. We'll have fun. 2 Corinthians 5. Oh, I have, to tu- I have to turn there too. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to start in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now there's a lot of kind of confusing big Bible words, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay, I'll kind of explain some of them. But um, again, what we want to see is that Paul picks, picks up and chooses the word creation for a reason because he's trying to capture a big concept. He's talking about how the new creation has come. He's saying that the new heart, the new spirit, the new thing that needed to happen to be made completely new, to be, to be remade as like creation, that happened in Christ. Um, and then Paul goes on to, to use this word of reconcile, reconciliation. You've been reconciled, now you're made reconcilers. The, the word reconcile, it, what it means is we were enemies of God. We were at arm's length. We were pushing God away. We actually fought against God's will and what God wanted for the world. And God, uh, in his love and his mercy and his compassion, ra- like wraps his arms around us and brings us in close. That's reconciliation. That's mending a relationship. And what Paul is saying is that we've been reconciled and we've now been made reconcilers. And we're actually ambassadors now. And then in verse 21, uh, he uses this phrase, um, uh, he made him who, who didn't have sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Which, that's a big concept, which I'd love to teach on sometime, but we don't really have time to get, in, get into what all of that means. But notice what Paul says. He says that we, those of us in Christ, might become the righteousness of God which is a big, big concept. That means that in Jesus, through looking this whole passage in 2 Corinthians, you are a completely new person from what you were before Jesus, which 
like we've kind of been hinting at, maybe you're like me. So all throughout high school and through, through a couple years of college, I lived um, a life far away from Jesus. I lived a really hypocritical life because I would have checked the box Christian, but um, went to parties on Friday night and did a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have, um, failed sexually, and man, the words that I used and the way that I talked about people and the way that I treated people was the complete opposite of what Jesus wants in the world and what Jesus wanted for me. But the beauty of reading this passage, that's not me anymore. And for those of you who've had that same experience, that's not you anymore. And maybe you didn't have the like kind of Hollywood sins and maybe they're more of the suburban sins or more of the socially acceptable sins like greed or pride. But that doesn't have to be you anymore. You can be made new. Or you have been made new and that thing doesn't have power over you anymore. Because in Jesus, you are no longer identified by your sin. Your identity, the way that God sees you, is no longer in what you've done. It's in what Jesus has done. Our identities change uh, in like our normal life too. So in 153 days, Jenna and I will get married, which uh, in one way, Jenna's identity, identity will change. She will go from being Jenna Stady to being Jenna Karsh. Woo! <laughs> Woo. <laughs> I'm super excited. Uh, I will also go from being single to being a husband, which rumor has it that that means changes come to my life. Uh, we were cleaning my apartment yesterday, and I haven't done laundry probably in four weeks. Um, <laughs> some of you are groaning and some of you are laughing. Uh, and then there's a couple guys in here going, I don't see the big deal. <laughs> and I haven't done dishes in a couple weeks. <coughs> Rumor has it those things will have to change. <laughs> Jenna's just kind of smiling. Yes, yes they will. Identities change, and that means that on the day that I say I do, I will go from being single Matthew Karsh to being husband Matthew Karsh, and that's a huge identity change, and the rest of my life will be an exploration and a discovery of what it means to be a husband and then what it means to be a father, regardless of my qualification for that. My identity will change, and the rest of my life will be me living into that, and that's just it. Identities change. And so, so that means that in Christ, you are no longer characterized by your sin. You are not the names people called you in middle school and high school or what your ex-wife or ex-husband said about you. Uh, you're not unwanted, you're not unloved, you're not ugly, you're not cast aside. You're not a slave to your addictions, to pornography, to alcohol, to anger, to greed, or to gossip. And you are not identified. After having met with Jesus, after having an encounter with Jesus, placing your faith in him, you are no longer a sinner. So the old adage, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, is theologically incorrect. You are not a sinner anymore. The Bible does not call you, after being in Christ, you are no longer a sinner. Now, if you're apart from Christ, that's a whole different story. Sin characterizes your life, apart from Christ. They characterize my life apart from Christ. But in Jesus, you are no longer a sinner. You are a new creation. 
And that's why I can address the crowd as saints. And some of you may have been uncomfortable with that. Um, and some of you may still be uncomfortable with, I don't feel that different. How can he call me a saint? I, he doesn't know what I did earlier today. We're going to keep going and address that. But because of Jesus' work and because of what God has done for you and the way that God sees you, you actually are sanctified. If you look, we're not going to flip there, but when you're reading through the New Testament, you look at the way that Paul addresses letters. A particularly interesting one is 1 Corinthians. If you read the letter, he's talking to a really messed up church who's got some really messed up stuff going on. They're divided. They're fighting amongst one another. There's a family with some weird, like, incest issues going on. And nevertheless, Paul addresses the letter to the church, those sanctified and called to be holy. You are saints. Uh, I'll clarify what I mean, though. I don't mean that you never sin again. Jenna can testify to that fact. There are times that I still sin. Um, This doesn't mean that you never sin again. But there's a fundamental difference between being a sinner who sometimes does good things and being a saint who sometimes acts out of their character, like apart from their character. Another way to characterize this growth that we experience, because growth and maturity should come. One way to characterize that, or another way to say it, is thank God I'm not what I once was. And I, I can genuinely say that. Thank God I'm not what I once was. But I'm also not what I one day will be. That if by God's grace I live until I'm 70 or 80, that hopefully my life will look more like Jesus then than it, than it did yesterday or 10 years ago. Well, definitely than 10 years ago. I was, I was 13. <laughs> I don't even know what I was doing when I was 13. Uh, the, the way that the Bible describes spiritual maturity, uh, in light of this whole new identity conversation, is that this is who you are, now live like it. Uh, it's not do this or do that, and maybe God will someday accept you, or God will someday like, think you're okay, and maybe you're up to snuff, or maybe the church will finally accept, accept you if you do this or do that. It's, it's not about trying harder. It's not about putting in more effort, because if you're like me, you might have tried that. Okay, I just got to muscle through it. I just got to try a little bit harder just to grow a little bit more. It's a whole lot more about trust and rest in Jesus and understanding what he's done for you and living out of your new identity as opposed to just trying to muscle it through, refusing to, refusing to share it with anyone else. Confession is way more powerful than we, we often give, give credit to it because when we share it, and we say, that's, that's not who I am. I'm doing this, but I don't want to. This isn't who I am. It breaks some of the power of that sin. The, the whole, the way that I, before really following Jesus, had this kind of messed up view of, of the way Christianity or the way that um, God viewed me. It was, hopefully, I do more better stuff than bad stuff in my life. And that one day when I see Jesus face to face, because he died on a cross for forgiveness of my sins, which I wasn't really sure what that meant, that maybe he would forgive me if he was feeling nice on that day, and then he'd let me into heaven. And that so drastically understates the work of Jesus. Jesus wants to change you now, and he wants to continue working in your life. And it's not just about trying harder, because no matter how hard you try, apart from Jesus, it's not going to work. Um, I was encouraged in college to read the Bible through this lens of new identity. And a couple of big changes happened. And I would actually encourage you, 
um, reading through scripture with this lens of God wants to do something, God wants to change humanity, God wants to change you and me, that, that changes a lot of things. Because what it did was it, it took spiritual growth and maturity, uh, it, it went from that just try harder to be better, and it became this is who I am, now I'm supposed to live like it. Um, when I thought of myself as a sinner, it was way easier to sin. I was way more likely to sin. And when I started thinking of myself as, a new ident- as having a new identity in Christ, um, things started to change. I'm actually, I have one of my college buddies who's sitting out here. Hi, Devin. Uh, Devin can attest this fact. Fact. He knew me both before Jesus and, and since following Jesus. And it's not because I'm awesome. He can also attest to that fact. It's because Jesus actually changes something. He changes something fundamentally deep down. And it's about having faith in that work. So the teaching of the New Testament on spiritual growth and maturity is essentially, and this is really boiled down, I understand, but this is who you are, now live like it. And so some of you are thinking, okay, Matt, so what if, what if I don't feel like it? Uh, what Jesus says about you and, and what God thinks about you is way more important than the way that you feel or your emotions or desires. And emotions and desires are important. That's not, I'm not saying those aren't important. But what I'm saying is that believing what God says about you is actually more important. The number one most important thing about you, if you are a follower of Jesus, is that you are in Christ. That's the hands down most important thing about you. And that should characterize and color everything that you do in life. The fact that you are in Christ, that you're his follower, that you're identified with him. So three thoughts um, as we talk about living this out in 2014, as we think looking forward the new year and the next three days, or I guess two days because it's like 7 o'clock, or what time is it? 6.55. I was close. Okay, three things. Number one, Jesus has made you new even when you don't feel like it. Um, here's a good example. So this is an example of not feeling all that different. Uh, so like I was saying earlier, I am... Second Lieutenant Matthew Carson, the Oregon Army National Guard. I went one day, July 16th, I was civilian Matthew Karsh, who knew nothing about the Army. And then I took an oath, and then I became Second Lieutenant Matthew Karsh, who still knows nothing about the Army. And uh, in, in the beginning of December, uh, I'm attached to this unit in Portland, and I got called into the commander's office. He's a colonel, which means I'm like down here and he's up here. And I'm with a bunch of other officers, and we're in his office, and I don't, I kind of know I'm there, but I don't really know. And he has a really nice office. Everyone else has a kind of janky office, but his is super nice. Has mahogany, has a, a couch and everything. And I'm just kind of laid back, just leaning on his, on his chair and everything, just smiling, just having a good time. Oh, this is cool. And uh, I look around the room, or I kind of just listening to everyone else respond to his questions. He's talking about, like, going away to school, which I'm, I'm going to South Carolina in two weeks, so I'm, okay, I think I'm supposed to pay attention. One-word answers, yes, sir, no, sir. And... Uh, I, I go from kind of just leaning like this with a big smile to noticing that everybody else in the room is, is standing like this, which is called parade rest, but no one's ever taught me that. And so <laughs> I went in my head, <gasps> I hope he doesn't see me. So then I ever so slightly did what everybody else was doing. I don't, still don't know if I was doing it right. But that's kind of the point, is that even when you don't know what you're doing, there's something different about you. So in the goofy example of me being in the army and still not knowing what I'm doing, it, it's me l- learning to live like an army officer with military bearing. I don't know what that means. <laughs> they just tell me to do it. 
But something similar happens in Jesus. You have a new identity, regardless of your qualification, regardless of if you know what you're doing. You have a new identity. And so even if you don't feel like it, Jesus has made you new. So number two flows directly out of that, which is learn to live the new way. Uh, and thankfully, we, in following Jesus, have a whole lot more help than I do in... Uh, they gave me a big book called The Army Officer's Guide. And the first edition came out in 1914, and they've just remade it 52 times since then. And they handed me this book and said, read it and learn how to be an army officer. Luckily, we have a little bit more help. We have God's spirit, like the empowering spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's now living inside of you. That's what's empowering you to live this out. It's not just you teach yourself how to do this better or you look around and try and imitate what other people are doing. You have a whole lot more help. But it's about learning to live the new way. Remember, it's not try harder. It's this is who you are. Now live like it. Now, a perfect picture of this is in 1 Timothy 4. Paul is writing to this guy named Timothy who's kind of his young mentee. And he says, uh, discipline yourself in godliness or train yourself to be godly, which the word he uses is gymnazo or gymnazo, gymnazo. It's where we get the word gymnasium. So it's, it's work out, it's train, practice to be godly. And it's, it's not just muscling through temptation. And, and I'm going to encourage you to try this. Next time you're tempted to do something, maybe next time you're tempted to do your favorite sin, approach it instead of, okay, God, maybe I can get through this time. Approach it as this is not who I am. Why would I ever act like that? That's not me anymore. Why would I ever do that? There's a lot of power in believing in what Jesus has done for you. That's not me. Why would I ever do that? Um, number three, Jesus is in the process of making everything new. And this is super cool because we get to be signposts pointing towards the ultimate recreation, remaking of the entire cosmos. So you and I are new creations, and we get to both evidence God's cr new creation style in our daily lives because God is changing us, and God has changed us, and, and we continue to grow and mature, and that, that's evidenced in our lives. But we also get to point towards it. Kind of one example, I was trying to think of an example of kind of some crazy way that this gets played out. This gets played out in the new community of people that gets formed because of Jesus and Jesus' work. Um, so this, I don't know all of you, but I know a handful of you, and uh, I'm a part of a missional community, and uh, we were over at my house, and we did, it was around Passover, so we were like, okay, let's do like a Jewish dinner, and we'll like try and do a Jesus-centered thing, and look at the things that Jesus would have done, and it was really fun. And at the end of the night, um, we were just sitting around sharing highs and lows of the week, how we can pray for one another, and uh, just kind of looking around the room and realizing who was there, and we're mostly young people, but then there's also, um, I, I, I don't mean that like pejorative, like we're all young people and there's some old people. I don't mean it like that. Um, but there's two older, wiser couples who are with us. <laughs> oh. And uh, I need them. We need them. And uh, it was just so amazing because our personalities are so different. And there's nothing in the world that would have drawn us together besides Jesus and Jesus creating a new community. And 
I, I, I love that group of people, but we have very little in common besides Jesus. And I love it. It's so much fun to hang out with them. And there's, I can see two of them. But that's what Jesus does. And that's what part of this, Jesus is making everything new. We get to evidence that in our new community, in our, in our new lives, in all of this stuff. And I was kind of thinking through this, and I think it's because I've been reading Chronicles of Narnia, but just go with the poetic like image for a second. We live in a world uh, that's characterized by by winter. Uh, I'm from Southern California, so I got I got sick of the snow and like cold four weeks ago. And uh, but this makes sense in Portland. We live in a world of winter, but we get to be people who are like that day in May that's 70 and sunny and it's beautiful, and you're sick and tired of the five months of winter. And it's 70 and it's beautiful, and then the next day it goes right back to being cold and wintry again because it's not summer until July 5th. <laughs> You're all laughing because it's true. <laughs> we get to be like that. We get to be the spring people in this world of winter pointing forward to, okay, summer's coming, summer's coming. And we get to live like, like summer is that day in May. We, we get to be those people. We get to live in that way, pointing forward to what's going to happen. So, if all of this is true, which I think it is, I've been talking about it for the last 35 minutes, if all this is true, then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do about it? And, and, and what about that gap that we experience between what we know should be true of us or what we know is true of us and where we're living that out? So we're going to kind of transition, and I'm going to invite uh, both the band dudes up because I don't like awkward silence. Um, like, I feel silence can sometimes be deafening. But what we're going to do, I'm going to invite, uh, I'm going to invite each and every one of you to talk to God, and it does not have to be some crazy mystical experience. You might not even hear anything when you try to listen to God, but it's just listening to what God might say to you, uh, and you might not hear anything because of distraction or because um, you just might not hear anything. Maybe He just doesn't say anything. But it also might be because He's already shared something with you. Maybe you already have an idea of what God might be leading you into. Maybe you already have an idea of what you should do to deal with that gap. Uh, but maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You've never experienced that new identity. Maybe you've never experienced that. And that's okay. Um, you're, you're welcome here. You're welcome here for as long as you want. But you are going to hear week after week, the only way to truly find life is in Jesus. And the only way to deal with that heart problem that every single one of us have is in Jesus. And so I'm going to invite you tonight to talk to God about it because I know that he wants to speak to you. I know that he wants to speak to each and every one of us. And again, you don't necessarily have to hear from, from him. You don't necessarily have to hear anything. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to play some music and just create some quiet, create some space and listen to God, which simply means quieting our minds, try and not think of your to-do list, try and not think of the cute guy or cute girl who's like two rows away, try and not think of uh, what's going to happen tomorrow or what happens has to happen in 10 minutes. Just in this moment, listen to what God might say to you. So we're going to create a little bit of quiet and space for that. And even if the gap might seem really wide, there's always forgiveness in Jesus. There is no gap too wide for Jesus to overcome. So I'm going to pray and then just spend a couple moments listening to the Lord. God, we are thankful for 
the fact that you've made us new. And God, I can think of stories of people around the room, of ways that you've rescued us, ways that you've changed us. And again, it's not because of our, our great work, our great um, effort. But God, you have changed us for your name's sake so the world might know you. God, I pray that you would speak right now to your church, to your sons and to your daughters, and even to, to those who are far away from you right now. I pray that you would speak. God, guide us into a deeper understanding of what you want for us.